and we had this $800 billion bailout. But since every single month, we've had $80 billion go into the system on average since then. Every month for the last 10 years, cheap credit go into the system. So the question is, where are we now? This is Bitcoin Basics Podcast with your host, Ferris, that's me, and Gordon from CoinCompass. We're Bitcoin advisors and educators supporting business and individual investors to safely buy, manage, and control their private keys, Bitcoins. This podcast is strictly educational and is not intended to be financial or investment advice. Full disclaimer in the show notes and at the end of this episode. Today is block number or block height 621,634. Or for those people who don't understand block time, 15th of March, 2020. You're listening to the Bitcoin Basics Podcast with me, Gordon, and Ferris. I'm in an undisclosed location, trying to move to another undisclosed location as I try to escape the coronavirus in my travels. So in this episode, it will be Ferris by himself. And like the last couple of episodes, it's going to be a visual feast as Ferris goes through some charts and graphs. So if you're listening to this on our podcast, you might want to head across to the YouTube channel to get the full immersive view. All links in the show notes. And if you want to have a look at our YouTube channel or socials, check out our website, bitcoinbasicspodcast.com, and all the links are up in the top left menu. Last but not least, Ferris uses a trading tool or platform called TradingView, which we've used in the past. And this is free to sign up and you can certainly go ahead and do that. And for most people, that's probably going to be okay. But if you're serious about trading and buying Bitcoin and want to get alerts and indicators and more than one chart and all that kind of stuff, you might want to sign up for TradingView. It's kind of cheap. If you wouldn't mind going to coincompass.com slash TradingView, if you're going to do that, then that just throws a few dollars our way to support us and it doesn't cost you a cent. So without further ado, here's Ferris. Well, thank you for that introduction, Gordon. And um, yeah, so before we get into Bitcoin, I do want to look at the state of global macro markets. And I think you coined this term first, but I didn't get credit for it, the corona correction. Um, So the corona was the sneeze. It was the tinder that basically um, lit the fuse to what has been a building bonfire for a very long time. So for those people that only look at Bitcoin, there is a lot more going on in the world. So we will have a quick, not a quick look, we will have an in-depth look at global markets. And I wanna start with the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ 100, which is a top 100 companies in the NASDAQ stock exchange, which tend to be tech heavy. Um, this was the darling of the, the bull run that we've had. And this is now the most extended bull market in equities that we've ever had, I believe. So we've had a pretty significant correction. So if we look here, we almost got to 10,000 and we got, we dropped nearly 30% to 7,000. We've had a bounce. So we'll talk a bit later as to whether this is a dead cap bounce or if this very, very long bull market that started in 2009, bottom 2009 post GFC, and we just look at that just trajectory from $1,200 to almost $10,000 in this 11 year period. Is this gonna continue or are we going to see a bear market, a decent bear market in both time and price? Um, We will get into that in more details. For now, we'll whip around 
um, markets. So this is the S&P 500, so 500 companies in the um, US stock exchange. Uh, so again, very significant correction, another bounce. If we go to Europe, the DAX has not bounced. So the DAX is the top companies in uh, Germany. I think it's the top 30 companies in Germany. And this here is actually looking quite significant because we've got these key levels of support just not too far away at 8,700 and it's now trading at 9,300. So we break these key levels here. We are looking at some pretty significant um, vacuum just to fall down even to 4,000. So the DAX um, could be an early indicator of things to come. And China. So China was the early sign of Corona. So this is early Feb or late Jan, sorry. So we saw this gap down when Corona hit. It closed at just below 3000 and then the next trading day, it opened at 2,700. So a 10% gap down, which is huge in these markets. Uh, this Shanghai Stock Exchange is very volatile, but that is just a massive gap down. It's since rallied. And we've just had this mentality of people around the world buying the dip, seeing that, oh, we're in a new era of um, central bank quantitative easing, where essentially they're ensuring the stock market's only going to go up forever. And again, we will talk about that some more. So I want to look now at 30-year treasury bonds. So what we've seen in, so this is the yield. So essentially the way bonds work is if you're buying a government bond, it's seen as a safe haven asset because a company can get liquidated, a company can go bankrupt, a company can get investigated. Global... Um, independent states, sovereign states, there is no higher authority. Um, so there is no international police force um, that can liquidate the government. Um, so the US, which is seen as the most stable of all countries, basically will have a very low yield, meaning it's an, it's an insurance policy, it's not gonna pay you much. So this is yields. So if we look down, we've just seen yields basically come down. So if yields are coming down, that means that the bond prices themselves are going up. So what it's saying that, yep, you want to buy a U.S. Treasury bond, the yield you'll be getting back on that is very low because what you see it as a pretty safe asset. If you want to look at Treasury bonds around the world, like Greece, for example, at one point with 15 or 20 percent because it was seen as very risky. So they're going to give you a 20% return on your money because they need your funds. So you are taking the risk, so they'll give you a higher yield. The U.S. now we've reached, this is a 30-year yield, which is meant to be higher than the 10-year, 5-year, or 1-year. It's meant to be the highest yield, and that is, I mean, that went below 1. So you can see this flight to safety to, to yields in the U.S., All right, slide two. So safe haven assets. So when equity markets go down, people run to safety. And um, well, what is meant to be safe? Gold is a safe haven asset. And if we look at the price of gold, 
we've seen a huge correction. So it went to 1700 and then it just hit that wall and bounced pretty significantly back down to 1500. So a huge correction in gold. Now, why is that? So this is actually is not uncommon. So if we go back to 2008, our last financial crisis, our last major corrections in equities, gold actually did perform significantly um, similar. So 2008, you can see about October was when kind of the shit hit the fan in equity markets. People realized, okay, it's pretty dire. We did see gold start to go down as well here. So it got up to 900, but then it had a pretty decent correction. Then it started to pick up. So it really wasn't until a few months later, after the crisis, a few months later, that it broke out to new all-time highs. So we're seeing this as well now in gold. It's coming down, even though it's a safe haven asset, it's going to have that um, slight correction itself. Now, why is that? Well, because people that bought gold back here in 2019, if you bought gold or even earlier, um, late 2019, you would have made some decent money. So what's happening now as equity markets are falling, when people invest in equity markets, when I say people, I'm talking about larger investors, they're not just buying cash, they're buying on margin. And you're gonna get margin calls very quickly, especially on gaps down. So your broker's gonna be calling you saying, we are closing your account unless you fund, fund us. So people will sell what is in profit to cover their losses. Because the mentality is, if I make money in gold, I'll sell it. The profit that I'm making I will then use those to cover my shortfall in equities, hoping that equities will go back up. So it's backwards thinking as a trader, you wanna cut your losses short and let your profits run. But what happens is people go, no, I'm hoping that my bad investments will come good. So I'll sell my good ones. So you're selling gold, hoping your bad investments will come good. And this is common across other asset classes. So we'll look at the US dollar, the Japanese yen. So the Japanese yen has this reputation of being a safe haven asset, but it isn't. What the Japanese yen actually does is, it's basically a carry trade. So in essence, when you are buying one currency and selling the other, you're trading one interest rate for another. So the US interest rate is actually higher than the Japanese. So if you're getting paid 2% to buy US dollars, and you're selling Japanese yen, and you're, you're then paying a quarter of a percent. So just by holding this trade, by buying dollars and holding yens, you're making money in holding the trade. So let's say for here, if you bought Japanese yen, sorry, if you bought US dollars against the yen in 2007, you had this massive correction. But if you held on and you, for another you know, 10, well, almost 10 years, eight years, you're still making money in here on the carry, on the interest. So what happens then is 2008, we saw this start to go down. Because what's happening at that point is people are, a lot of people are closing that trade. They're going, all right, I bought US dollars, I sold yen. I now need to buy yen, sell US dollars. So US dollar starts to go down because people are closing that long-term carry trade. 
So that's why when the Japanese yen is saying, oh, it's seen as a safe haven asset, you're not buying Japanese yen, you're closing your US dollar positions. So we then had, what we saw again, the US dollar against the yen just completely tumble. 10%, which is a huge move against what is one of the largest traded currency pairs in the world. A 10% drop in a matter of a, a week, just from there to there. And that is people closing their long US dollar short Japanese yen position. Now, interestingly enough, what's actually happened in the last few years is we've seen the Euro take over the role of the US of the Japanese yen as a currency trade, as a carry trade. So this is the US dollar against the Euro. And because the European Central Bank was the first in um, about 10 years ago to drop their interest rates, they went to negative, um, or to 0% interest rates before anyone else. People go, well, I'll, I'll buy dollars, sell the Euro, and I'm making that carry trade. So we then saw the US dollar go up against the Euro. And again, we had that crash where people are going, oh, I now need to close that position because I need to raise cash. I've made money buying dollars and selling Euros. I now need to close that position. So people are closing the trades that made money in order to support their losing trades. So this brings us to Bitcoin. Now, most of us listening here would know that we at Coin Compass believe Bitcoin is a long-term store of value. So why is it that something that you would consider a long-term store of value performing the way it has? You look at this chart and it is acting like a risk asset. It's tumbled just like the um, stock market has tumbled, just like the two currency pairs I showed you has tumbled. So why is Bitcoin, which is considered by us, a long-term store of value tumbling. Well, maybe we see it as a long-term store of value, but the general market doesn't. So in essence, what we're looking at is maybe this could be like gold, where gold, I believe, will bounce and go to all-time highs within the next five years. I believe that will happen in gold. That's just an opinion. But will Bitcoin do the same thing? So if we look at a weekly chart of Bitcoin, We've had this week where it just, like a razor blade through butter, just broke through key levels of supports. Um, and we, in our last YouTube interview, we, um, YouTube video, we did talk about this. We said, we think we're gonna you know, have a small bounce at 6,000, but if it goes through 6,000, we're going much lower. And we did, it broke through 6,000 very quickly. And we've tested below 4,000 here which um, around 3,300, we said was our next level of support. So we might test that. If we break 3,300, we are looking to go back to the 1,800 level. So why is it that Bitcoin's behaving this way? Well, like I said, I believe it's a long-term store of value, but you had a lot of people that got caught up in this frenzy here that went, you know, when Bitcoin started going from 3,000 to 20,000, a lot of people got caught up in this. And that's not that long ago. That's only two years ago. Markets have memories. People got burnt here. We saw this run in 2019. Maybe people thought, okay, we're going back to all-time highs and then got burnt again at a lower level. So a lot of people that bought here and here at 20,000 and at 14,000 just want to get out. And if they're getting margin calls because they're heavily loaded in the equities, they will sell anything, Bitcoin included. 
So I want to look at where are we going from here, because this decade is a crucial decade on a macroeconomic level. So I want to bring up a chart of the NASDAQ. So this is a yearly chart, which means every candle that you are looking at presents a 12-month period. So in the 90s, we had what was called the Roaring 90s. So in essence, um, we were, um, the Cold War ended between 89 and 91. You had the collapse of the Berlin Wall, and then we had the Soviet Empire, communism as we know, basically come to an end in 1991. And Western and Eastern Russia were incorporated into one country. So we started to pick up. And the 90s saw this huge run in the stock market, basically everywhere except Japan, which I'll get into. So it was known as the Roaring 90s. It was an era where the historian Francis Fukuyama said, we've reached a new world order. Not only did we see economic prosperity, but globally on a political level, it was believed that we've achieved world peace through what was collective security. So this was when the, um, after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and he was turned back and basically there was essentially very little loss of life and damage. People believed, okay, we've, en we've ended war. We're in a stage of economic prosperity. Well, economic prosperity came to an end in the dot-com bubble, but to be honest, it wasn't that severe. It was seen in, the, just in a tech stocks. Now, the NASDAQ, which was a darling at the time, and just look up pets.com to see what we're talking about, that came to a top just below $5,000 in, $5, in the year 2000. Now, it took 16 years for it to get back to that level. So 2016, the NASDAQ finally reached the top it had in 2000. So that was a bubble in the tech sector. What we then saw though, was in this period, we had a global financial crisis that was not just a tech sector, that was housing. And at the time, the belief was that housing never goes down. In some areas, yes, but the prevailing wisdom at the time was house prices in America will only ever go up on a national average. They didn't, they went down. Now look at this, this is a dot-com bubble. It took 16 years to get back there. Global financial crisis. When we say global financial crisis, it wasn't just the American banks that were investing in housing. It wasn't just the Americans themselves. Europeans and Australians were investing in this as well. They wrapped this up into packages and sold them to investors, bankers around the world. So the whole world was tied up into this. So the highs of 2008, well, two years later, we're above them. The dot-com bubble and burst took 16 years to recover. The global financial crisis took two years. Why? QE. Governments were printing money. And we'll go into this into buybacks later. So this run from the bottom of 2009 to where we are today, 11 years later, has been fueled by cheap credit. Now, I mentioned that we had the roaring 90s. This was not the case for Japan. So if we look at the Nikkei, 
So this is Nikkei 225, which is um, top 500 companies, 225 companies in the Japanese stock exchange. So we looked at the roaring 90s, where essentially we saw that Japan was, um, sorry, that the United States and was, did exceptionally well. Now, if we look at that same period, 1991 to 10 years later in Japan, that is a very different picture. Uh, what we're seeing here is we had a huge bubble in Japan. So in the 80s, everyone thought, okay, Japan is basically the new economic superpower. If you were a kid in school in the 80s, your parents wanted you to learn Japanese because they thought all business in the future will be done with Japanese businessmen. So parents wanted you to learn Japanese. We had this huge correction. And this was, wasn't just a stock market. Real estate in Japan as well had this huge correction. It was a massive bubble in Japan. And we look, Japan then entered what was called the lost decade. Now, this was not just an economic issue. This was a demographic one because Japan's fertility rates dropped very, very low. We're averaging just above one child per household. Um, I think that's correct. But not only that, they had essentially a zero immigration policy. So you had an aging population and guys like, um, Grant Williams and Harry Dent talk about this, the demographic time bomb. They saw this coming. They said, this is coming. It is demographics. You cannot fight demographics. And Mark Yuskos picked up on this and he says, are we all turning Japanese? Where whatever happened in Japan, 10 years later will happen in Europe. 10 years after that will happen in the United States. So we're looking now at Germany and the migration that you're seeing into Germany from the war refugees, potentially longer term, yes, it will help. So mass immigration has a short term detriment to an economy, but longer term, these people become taxpayers and consumers. So this could be why Germany has allowed its migrants to come in, not just for humanitarian purposes, but potentially for longer term economic ones. But where are we now? So we could be on a global level in the G8 countries entering this period of malaise, where in Japan, bad demographics, huge debt led to two decades, not just one decade, but now two decades of sideways contraction. So zero GDP growth, um, an aging population. And if you look at the, uh, you know, as we are now, the Nikkei, we are nowhere near the highs reached in the 90s. And this does not take into account inflation. These are nominal prices. Now, the problem we have today as well is in Japan, it could have been worse. Why wasn't it worse? Because America had the roaring 90s. People were making a lot of money. The economy was doing very well. They were buying Japanese products. So this here, you had the rest of the world, China and Europe, and the United States doing well, assisting Japan. The problem we have today is not, is that everyone's in the same boat. So right now we had, so we had the dot-com bubble, which I looked at, we looked at, we had the housing bubble peak. We are talking about an everything bubble right now. This is a graph from Mike Larson of uh, Weiss Ratings. You just look him up online. This is household net worth as a percentage of disposable personal income. So we've got a huge bubble, not just in real estate again, not just in equities, but pretty much everywhere you look, everything's overvalued. And we've had 
more hedge funds shutting down than ever before. And why? Because everything is so expensive. They can't find value. They can't find anything worth paying for. Everything is so inflated. One major component of this is ETFs. So what's going to happen now? So I want to go back to this long-term NASDAQ chart that we looked at before. So here, what made this different? Central banks buying, sorry, central banks basically printing money. So 2008, bottom of 2008 was, um, everyone was basically thinking what's going on? How did this happen? Not really knowing what was going on behind the curtains, but Congress said, oh, we need $800 billion to save the banks. So when Congress or the government prints money or bails someone out, that's the taxpayers gonna end up paying for it because governments are represented by the people, the people are taxpayers. So here, they said, we need $800 billion to save the global financial system. If we don't do it immediately, the financial system will collapse. Now, the House of Representatives of America did not pass it the first time through. They said, no, we're not putting that through because our constituents don't want to pay for this. The banks failed, let them fail. Then they said, no, they're too big to fail. We have to do this, we have to do this, we have to do this. And so $800 billion was passed that was given to those big private banks. They then... The, the moral behind that, or not the moral, but the economic um, paradigm was if we put cheap money into the system, then essentially what will happen is people will borrow at lower interest rates and keep the economy going. Because Ben Bernanke studied the Great Depression, and the Great Depression of the 30s wasn't just a stock market crash, but what happened was businesses stopped hiring. So in the 20s, um, sorry, in the um, yeah, late 20s, early 30s, when you had the financial crisis and people starving, you actually had crops on farms that were just rotting because the business, the farmer that owned those crops could not hire people and pay for people to pick them. So as people are starving, crops were rotting. So Ben Bernanke believed that what actually led the Great Depression to be worse than it was, was the lack of liquidity, the lack of money in the system, people not borrowing money to keep businesses moving. So this is what he convinced everyone to do. He said, we need to keep the system moving by injecting liquidity. So they borrowed money from the people, gave it to private corporations. Those private corporations then turned around and bought bonds and stocks with them. Why? because people didn't want to go into debt. And years later, Ben Bernanke came out and said, oh, the people didn't do what they needed to do. People just went through a global financial crisis. They lost their jobs. They're not going to turn around and get, go into more debt to keep the economy moving. They didn't have job security. So people, for the first time in, since World War II, since the end of World War II, the savings rate in America went up. That's the first time that happened. People started to save their money and get out of debt. They did the exact opposite of what Ben Bernanke and other economists wanted them to do. They wanted them to get into debt at cheaper levels and buy assets, buy consumer products, keep the economy ticking along. So the banks that just basically had this $800 billion impetus turned around and bought bonds and stocks with them. And it was right here in 2009 that 
Barack Obama said, I think it's a good time to buy stocks. He knew this, why? Because he was giving the banks money to do so. And we had this $800 billion bailout, but since every single month, we've had $80 billion go into the system on average since then. Every month for the last 10 years, cheap credit go into the system. So the question is, where are we now? This big candle here, so this is again a 12 month candle on the NASDAQ. Is this going to look like this one here, where it's just a small reversal and we keep going as central banks pump more and more money into this broken system and try and save it by adding debt? Because that is literally what they are doing. If you are a homeowner and you are in credit card debt and your house is valued less than the loan, bank will foreclose on you. You can need to, you basically you're declared bankrupt. Governments aren't really declared bankrupts because they can just print more money. So their answer to this global financial crisis was essentially, let's just increase our credit limit. That's all it was. They just increased their credit limit. The dot-com bubble took 16 years to get back to where it was. The global financial crisis, two years later, and we're, we're at all time, we're at new highs. This is not how no markets are naturally meant to work. Businesses are meant to go under if they fail. So we did not allow the system to fail. We fixed it with this same problem that caused it, more debt. So are we looking at a period of international malaise? Malaise basically meaning you're just at home sick. So our global economy is going to go into this period that we saw in Japan with the Nikkei, where essentially for a decade we go nowhere. Now remember what Mark Yusko said and other people said, what happened in Japan will happen to us. It's demographics. And if you look at the West, we have a demographic time bomb. We have an aging population, not enough young people coming through. And the interesting thing, the reason why I've been focusing on the NASDAQ is because you have these darlings that lead the runs. If we look at Tesla, and this is a phenomenal chart, there were people who were shorting Tesla at $200, looking at the valuations going, it is not worth this much. They, it is a business that has been losing money every year. Now they make a fantastic product, sure, but they're not making money as a business. Well, what happened to Tesla? This was just a massive short squeeze. I mean, it almost reached $1,000. That is just absurd for a company like that. So we had what was called the FANGs, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. And if we look at these, I mean, you look at Facebook. In seven years, it went from $20 to over $200, a tenfold increase. So the, the ones that led the huge euphoria, they're the ones that tend to lead the crash. So this is a weekly chart, and we've already seen a huge correction in Facebook. Tech key levels now, if it breaks 115, it's going much lower. Amazon, same thing. Jeff Bezos, by the way, he sold everything here at this top. The, the owner of the company, not everything, sold a huge amount of his shares here at this top. And now we're well below that as well. Netflix. I mean, look at this run in Netflix. Eight years ago, it was at $7, reached $420. And now Netflix is getting a lot of competition from Amazon, from Apple, and from Disney+. Plus. So where's Netflix going to go? And then we have Google, or Alphabet as it tickers now. 
same thing, this trajectory from bottom left to top right. Now, at some point, gravity has to take over. So this is where we are now. What is going to happen now? Go back to the NASDAQ. Our central bank's going to intervene. Call, and now the thing is when I say intervene, central banks cannot buy stocks. In Germany, they can. In other European countries, they can. In the US, they can. The central bank does not have the power to buy stocks. Janet Yellen, who was chairwoman before the current um, Jay Powell, said, oh, we think we should be allowed to buy stocks. So the government basically wants to buy private enterprise. So what this led to is debt in the private sector. So this chart here is from Modern Economics. Oh, sorry, it's from Weiss as well. Corporations are piling on debt like there's no tomorrow. So this is the level of debt in private corporations. And that chart looks like it basically follows QE. As the governments are printing money, banks are borrowing it, companies are borrowing it, and buying back their debt. So what we've seen here, and this, in a way, this really is just a sense of highway robbery, um, buying, you know, robbing from the poor. So if we look at Apple, which has had, now keep in mind, Apple is no longer the leader in any sector of its industry. It is not the leader in phone sales. It's not the leader in tablet sales. It's not the leader in music. It's not the leader in cloud computing. It's not the leader in um, computer sales itself. But look at what, the, you wouldn't guess that by looking at the share price. So what led to this? Apple borrowing money and buying back its own share. So if you are an insider in Apple, you're doing very well because you own the stock. So you're buying cheap credit, you're watching, borrowing cheap, watching the stock go up and then selling into this rally. Now, what has this done for the average Joe? Because the whole purpose of this was to see the middle class basically get wealthier. Well, they haven't because it's been more and more difficult for them to get in as prices go up. So what we've seen now is essentially CEOs are selling their own stocks after making a fortune by buying, borrowing cheaply and everyone else, it's been harder and harder for them to get in because they, they don't want to get into debt. They can't afford it. They're not on million, you know, multi-million dollar salaries where whatever money they're getting in has to go to discretionary spending. All right, what does it have to do with Bitcoin? So I want to look at these key levels in Bitcoin. Now, I personally do believe Bitcoin will do very well in the next 10 years. But I'm gonna look at what's gonna change that. So I think Bitcoin's a store of value. However, it's, it's, it was discussed, and this is not my words, I wish I could remember who said this. Bitcoin is a safe haven asset disguised as a get-rich-quick scheme. And this is where we are in Bitcoin. It just, we saw this huge run-up. Um, and that looks just like the chart of Tesla, doesn't it, that we looked at before. It's massive run-up. So a lot of people just did not understand Bitcoin, speculated in Bitcoin and the altcoins as well, and it just led to this euphoria where it hit 20,000. So right now, with Bitcoin, I believe it's a store of value still. What would change my mind? If the core developers left Bitcoin for some reason, um, if central banks decided that with Bitcoin at these lower prices, with the happening coming, if the hash rate dropped and central banks attacked it and took over Bitcoin, 
it's a very unlikely scenario. It's a possible one, and this is what we want to do, consider all possibilities. Then I would, I would be concerned for Bitcoin. If the core developers left, if there was a coordinated 51% attack. Um, and if you want to know more about what we're talking about, please subscribe to our newsletter because we actually talk about the 51% attack in depth in our most recent newsletter, the March one. So here's what would happen for Bitcoin. Here's where I see key price levels of support and resistance. So 3000 is a key level. Why? Because you see here, swing trading, bang, it, it was bought there, it was bought there. And that's not that long ago. That's, you know, just under 18 months ago. I would expect a big bounce at 3000 if we get there. If we break 3000, we are looking at potentially revisiting 1800 levels. That is a key level of support. If it gets below there, then this was where I would be looking at, okay, what are my concerns are the, as those big picture concerns are the core developers saying we've lost money in this thing. We're out. We're going to move on to something else. Um, well, basically Bitcoin just have a, um, a brain drain where the smart people leave. Will government say, okay, this thing is now really cheap. We can probably afford to attack it. So in this area, that, those would be my big picture concerns for Bitcoin. So if you do not share those concerns, which to be honest, to me, I am looking at all possibilities. Um, and that's, I just have to be ready. You, you got to just realize where's my cognitive dissonance here. Um, I am a long-term believer in Bitcoin, but at the same time, I believe in what Peter Brandt says, you need to have strong opinions weekly held. So what's going to change my mind? Core developers leave, we see a 51% attack. Wherever the core developers go, I'll just follow them. If they launch a new coin, I will end up going with them because I believe you want to follow good people. Not necessarily a good idea, but good people because good people will find a good idea and work on it together. So I'm in a way hoping that what we see in Bitcoin will basically be a sideways consolidation. So this period in here, 2019, I'd like to see um, 2018, sorry, to, into 2019. I'd like to see this again where we just go sideways because this move from 3,000 to 14,000 was way too quick, way too fast. That's just not a healthy move, even for Bitcoin, which tends to be very volatile. So ideally, I would like to see Bitcoin move around sideways for some time. If it does that, I would see that as an awesome stacking sats dollar cast averaging, which basically means you are just buying and accumulating your Bitcoins for the longer term perspective. So again, we do not encourage traders. We don't encourage you trading Bitcoin, but if you are, here's some key levels that you wanna be looking out for long term. So Bitcoin has a lot of overhead resistance. There's a lot of levels we need to break through before we go to all time highs. So these levels are 6,500, 10,500, 14,000, and then the 20,000 from a couple of years ago. So there's a lot of resistance ahead for Bitcoin. So for long-term holders, that's how you need to look at it. This is a long-term holding. You wanna hold on your Bitcoin long-term. If it gets down to these levels at 3,100, and 1800, I personally would look at buying them long-term. That's not financial advice, that's an opinion. But for traders, these are the key levels you're looking at. 
Because why? People bought here. If it gets back there, they're going to want to sell again. Because Bitcoin is not uncorrelated. All markets are made of people. The gold, the stock market, currencies, they are made of people buying and selling these asset classes. Bitcoin is not uncorrelated. It is correlated to human sentiment. And humans work on two sentiments, fear of missing out and the other one, which is a fear of losing money. So this FOMO, fear of missing out, is what led to this huge run. And we haven't, and we've made lower highs continuously. So people just want to make their money back. So fear and greed are the two main sentiments in any asset class. And right now we are seeing fear. We want to see people, they want to get their money back. They're selling Bitcoin, they're selling gold to basically hedge their losses in the stock market. So this is where Bitcoin is now being more correlated as a risk asset and not as a safe haven asset. So I would expect gold to actually bounce. I would see gold bouncing here. That's just an opinion. Um, I think 1500 might be the floor for gold. If it goes below, below 1460, then it will go significantly lower. But I think gold is going to bounce here. And I would expect Bitcoin not to break through 6,000. I think 6,000 is going to be a key level of resistance for Bitcoin. Um, so we look at it here. See how it just hit those marks? And I want to put in volume. And we did speak of rights of volume in one of our um, newsletters. Again, if you do subscribe to the CoinCompass newsletter, you will um, get access to all previous issues. So you'll find why um, we wrote extensively about volume and why uh, it was our February edition, why I, volume was important. So we look here, look at that volume spike on a down day through 6,000. Very important. It went through a key level of support on high volume. The next highest volume day, it did not close above 6,000. So we had a lot of buying power here, did not close above this key level of 6,000. And now we're churning, we're not going anywhere. So I think it's gonna take a while for Bitcoin to break back above 6,000. What would change my mind? What would change my mind is if we basically see this, the NASDAQ, global equities, start to rebound and go back up. That means people are feeling confident. The coronavirus is not as big a deal as what we thought. We can, we can take risks again. That's what would change my mind. Thanks, Faris. As usual, an excellent analysis of the markets. As Bitcoiners, sometimes we want to know when moon, but we need to zoom out and look at the macro picture because there's a lot more going on than just Bitcoin. So thanks again for that. Just a reminder, this is not financial or investment advice, so do your own research. Also, if you wanted to sign up to TradingView, it is free, but if you wanted to have those extra features, if you're getting serious about trading, then we would appreciate you going to coincompass.com slash tradingview, and if you sign up for an account, that will throw a few dollars our way. It doesn't cost you anything. For all other stuff, have a look at coincompass.com slash free. Thanks again and until next time. Thanks for watching or listening. Please visit coincompass.com slash free to register to our socials and discover other free content. Subscribing, liking and following helps this content remain ad free.
Until next time.